0: Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscaped people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Morning, Mark. <laughs> Morning, David. We have a, a bit of a break in the weather today, Mark. It looks like it's been raining for about two weeks in Cumbria.
1: <laughs> Not quite, but... It's certainly as soon as it rains and it rains for several days you feel it's been perpetual but we did have that wonderful little break on Beda fell with Amy Bray so that cheered me up no end
0: great little walk on Beda but we're a long way from there today Mark we have exited Cumbria for the second time in the last three country stride podcasts a bit, bit dodgy but not truly because we are into
1: a, a new world here in Teesdale, and we're within about a mile and a half of actually being back
0: in Cumbria and that's our aim Our aim to get back into Cumbria, we're in one of the finest of the Durham Dales, Upper Teesdale here. And we're here because we are going to walk along one of the UK's great national trails. Talk us through what walk we have planned and who we're going to be joined by.
1: Well, the very first trail of its kind in Britain was the Pennine Way that what was thought in 1930s is the Long Green Trail. Uh, Tom Stevenson was the great man who campaigned and championed the whole notion of access to the countryside and to the moorlands and mountains, and the Pennine Way was a vehicle towards that ultimate aim. And so he's very much the background of this. But we are out with the man who's written a guide to the history of the Pennine Way, rather than a guide to the route. Uh, Andrew McCloy from Eulgreave in the Peak District. And we're walking from here at Langdon Beck, heading west uh, towards Cauldron Snout, mm. famous cascades spilling from the Cowgreen Reservoir. And then we'll head across the moorland west towards Highcut Valley, which will be an amazing place. I've never seen it from this perspective before, and this is the Pennine Way's amazing journey from east to west, heading for Dufton. Which is, right now, is it
0: 10 miles distant, a uh, longer? If, it's about 12 miles from here. 12 miles, so distant Dufton, uh, crossing into the county of Cumbria. And to my mind, this stretch of the Pennine Way is, is one of the finest. Uh, I think if you combine it with the walk from Middleton in Teesdale, uh, about eight miles south, uh, on a, what is a very, very long day... It's fabulous, isn't it?
1: This is an area famous for its wildlife and and sense of heritage in an agricultural landscape. But the journey beyond Birkdale, the farm beyond Cauldron Snout, is thought to be like the wildest bit of the Pennine Way. Mm. But then we break into the glories of Eden, and it's it's an overwhelmingly amazing journey.
0: It is that. Now, we've spoken in the past, Mark, about the Pennine Way. It's uh, hard to escape it up here. Uh, particularly to some extent with the Wainwright influence as well. You're not a massive fan, are you? Oh, Penway way is uh, it's something deeply rooted that some
1: people feel they need to do. Mm. I haven't felt that need. No. <laughs> but it doesn't matter at all because it's something you harbour deep in your soul and you must do it once in your life. And there's lots of places I've... I long still to go to Mm. so Britain particularly for me has got so many wonderful places that I know I'll never get to but I still long to go to Mm. but the Pennine Way is one of those routes that has found its place in the hearts of all true outdoor lovers.
0: It's a kind of chalk and cheese trail I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that with Andrew some people absolutely fall in love with it and I count myself in that number so i'm really looking forward to today's walk the only thing that's uh, casting a bit of a downer on it is it is very autumnal isn't it this is the first day this year i've put on the jacket it feels as if summer's left us behind famous day the first of september is the
1: beginning of autumn and the here we are cusp- Cuspier so we're a couple of three days into September but we are in the Pennines and this is cold weather country. Andrew was telling me just a few minutes ago before we decided to start the uh, recording that it's warm in Yorker in the Peak District where he is this morning so warm? Warm? What's
0: that? (laughs) What's warm? Remind me what warm. You you rub your hands very quickly together and then suddenly you feel the warmth. Ah right well we'll be doing a certain amount of that today on that note Mark let's uh, let's head off and meet Andrew Mccloy
1: I'm at Beck Youth Hostel in the lee of a strong breeze. In fact, my hat's just blown off, so that's that a proof that there's a breeze. <laughs> We're in the last wilderness, I think they tend to call the, this area here, Upper Teesdale, And it, it's a magical place. And I'm in the company of Andrew McCloy. And Andrew has a great affinity for this area and, and walking. So, can you tell a little bit about your love of walking?
2: Well, Morning, Mark. Um, I actually grew up in suburban South London, uh, so I'm a, I'm a southerner. I'm used to low hills, flat space, but our family holidays were always up the lakes, the Pennines, Scotland, in the mountains, in the hills, and we did a lot of walking. Uh, fell in love with the hills from an early age and fell in love with the Pennines. It's mm. just that that spine going up Northern England that was always there, and and I find places like the North Pennines here, This this semi-wilderness just amazing really really inspiring place and your family's
1: particular love of the outdoors where did that have its roots can you sense where your mum and dad loved it specifically? it
2: came from their parents uh, just healthy outdoor life bit of youth hosteling mm. just just enjoying getting out it was a culture on, on two feet yeah very very much so and uh, we've always had active holidays we've never gone adventure holidays as mm. such but I've I was fed that from an early age, and, um, and I, I fell in love with the Lake District Mountains, fell in love with these wide vistas of the Pennines, and ended up living in the Peak District. Um, so yeah, tick all round.
1: Yeah, you, you, your life has fallen into place. So as we're just physically a, a start from the actual trail, we'll walk across the fields now and actually join the trail itself, which is by the tees, I believe. Well, head off now. Well, Andrew, this is marvellous. We've come upon a wooden bridge crossing the River Tees itself, and it's teasing us with its bouncing and dancing through the rocks. And we've now actually joined Pennine Way. There's a field over next to us with some highland cattle lying down, so they're all content. And I'm very content to be on the Pennine Way, especially in your company, because you've got a great sense of the history that set the Pennine Way Moving. Can you give us a little sense of where it all started?
2: Well, the, the first time that the idea for a continuous walking route, the length of the Pennines, was floated, came from uh, access campaigner Tom Stevenson, who wrote an article in the Daily Herald newspaper in 1935, a famous article entitled Wanted, a Long Green Trail. Now, he was a, a newspaper journalist at the time, tireless outdoor campaigner, um, and he'd received a letter from two girls from the USA who wondered if there was anything similar to the Appalachian Trail in in Britain. And he replied, well, no, there isn't, but what if, what if we had a trail and he floated various names, a Great North Trail that ran the length of the Pennine Spine from the Peak District up into Scotland. Um, It would be a magnificent upland walking trail, a premier England walking route, and he, he floated this idea in a double-page spread, which has gone down into folklore history, followed it up with several other articles, and the idea for the Pennine Way was born. And this was a time, 1935, just three years after the Kinder Scout mass trespass. Mm-hmm. So the notion of greater public access and a right of public access to the hills and the moors of Northern England were uppermost in people's, uh, in people's minds. So that the time was ripe for Pennine Way.
1: Clearly, and Tom, he's, he was from Chorley, so he was rooted in the
2: Pennine aura. It was in his backyard. The Pennines meant a huge amount to him personally. He was a remarkable man. He really was. He ended up being the long-time secretary of the Ramblers Association, but there was so much more to the man. He was self-taught. He left school in his, in his early teens. He was a pacifist.
1: Ge- he, went to, he went to jail. Yeah, he
2: jailed for his beliefs, and yet... He always remained dedicated to people's freedom and in particular, public access to the moors, his home moors and and hills of Northern England. And from an early age, he took himself off by foot and by bike to explore. And he championed access for the rest of his life. And the Pennine Way was was his baby. In many ways, you can take the Pennine Way as a 268 mile long distance footpath. On its own, fantastic premier route. But in fact, the subtext, always the subtext for was the campaign for access. The Pennine Way would be the lever to unlock public access to the hills. In particular, at the Peak District end, where there were 50 square miles of moorland that the public had no right of access to. The the largest area of upland England that was completely excluded to the public.
1: American Indians would say, this land belongs to us all, it belongs to nature, it belongs to us. No man could buy and own and exclude. And it, that's why Tom very much felt access was something that will always need to be championed and challenged and,
2: and fought for. And what, what Tom was clear about at an early stage and some of his writings, his jotting, his conversations uh, and the archive material that I've seen, he realized this straight away, that the Pennine Way on its own, a linear route, would be great, but it would be the springboard for, for greater public access. And once ordinary men and women had gained access, albeit on a, on a narrow path, that, that would be the first step to securing wider public access. And all these years later, we've got the freedom to roam on, on open uh, northern hills, which is so dear to us now.
1: Tom, he knew how to orchestrate political will, and he had this very cute idea to invite politicians just after the Second World War, to come and actually walk the route. And can you give me a little bit of a background on who he got and what occurred?
2: It was fascinating because Tom Stevenson, amongst his many talents, he was, he was grounded in journalism, but he was a canny political mover as well. For some time, he worked in Whitehall as a civil servant uh, in PR and communications, we'd call it now, press officer at the time. And he knew that to realise the Pennine Way required persuading politicians to back it and politicians to actually uh, enact legislation. So set the scene, 1945, um, end of the Second World War, reforming, idealistic, Labour government coming in, whole new agenda. So education, um, welfare state, everything. Uh, was suddenly there was a new horizon for everyone, but that included access to the countryside. And John Dower's seminal report, which led to the uh, 1949 National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act, delivered long-distance trails uh, like the Pennine Way, which was the first one. But that was on a knife edge in, in the, in the mid-late 1940s, before we got to 49, because there was so much else crowding in on the legislation. There was resistance from landowners. We were still in an unenlightened time where public access was rebuffed by many landowners and farmers. So uh, Tom Stevenson, to encourage political support and to whip up some public encouragement uh, for for the notion of a Pennine Way organised a three day walk through this very section where we're standing here in Upper Teesdale. in Teesdale, Dufton Crossfell, up to Alston there were six or seven Labour MPs including some very prominent ones, we had uh, Barbara Castle who went on to be a a prominent government minister for many years, the former Chancellor Hugh Dalton who'd only just stepped down and equally crucially uh, a chap called Fred Willey who would go on to be the minister who actually signed off this um, this groundbreaking legislation. There are fantastic black and white photos of these politicians striding up what would be the route of the Pennine Way, followed by a gaggle of journalists, (laughs) Fleet Street journalists, a lot of them in in civvies, just in ordinary town shoes, hurriedly scribbling notes, trying to keep up with Tom Stevenson and these energetic MPs. It must have been quite a sight. Um, But not just that, it made headlines. Every day, for almost a week, there were regular daily updates in all the, all the newspapers, all the free Street newspapers, uh, reporting on how these MPs were being taken across the Northern Hills, a PR coup like no other. And it was a, a fabulous springboard for public support for the it Pennine f- Way. It, fleet of foot they were
1: in Fleet Street. And they went as far as Hadrian's Wall, I believe.
2: I think they got up pretty much up there. Mm. I mean, they covered long distances. Um, and, uh, and Tom Stevenson was gaining leaden- leading them on. There's all kinds of tales how Barbara Castle chided some of the, the male politicians for being too slow. <laughs> how she fed sandwiches to some of the beleaguered photographers who had never ever been out in the hills before. But all part of the, the strategy. big strategy and the big build up. And when those politicians got back to Westminster, everyone knew about the idea for the Pennine Way and there was the support and it pushed it over the line. All the
1: Soviet map is crowded out with trails, but this is the starting point and thank you for bringing on it. Let's, let's try it on a bit now. The spaciousness is amazing and yet it's an agricultural landscape. So ahead of me, I can see uh, a a silage-cropped walled field there, a garth. Uh, and there's uh, some belted galloways, about 10 or 15. And uh, crags up to our left, our crunkly scar, the beginnings of. Uh, it's very spacious, very open. We're very elevated. This is the Pennine
2: Way that really gets to you. Now, when did it first get to you, Andrew? Well, the Pennine Way and I go back all of my 50 years or 55 years now because I was born in the same year the Pennine Way uh, was opened and, and there's almost some affinity. I, I really feel a strong, deep personal attachment to the path even though I, I didn't walk it in its entirety until it's 50th year, my 50th year. Um, and growing up in, in South London, in suburbs with just two weeks family holiday in the, in the summer, Coming to somewhere like this in Upper Teesdale where suddenly your horizons just went backwards. There was so much space, so much sky, so much air, it was quite amazing. So I put my feet on the Pennine Way several times but I never really walked it in earnest. And then as a teenager when I really started uh, long distance walking on my own and with friends, I started exploring um, the the trails, mainly of southern England, Ridgeway and the South Downs Way, the North Downs Way, and I started gravitating towards some of the bigger northern ones. But I always kept the Pennine Way at bay. It was almost as if I was just getting ready for it. Uh, and it wasn't really until I moved to the Peak District that I started walking sections in earnest, but it wasn't until the 50th year until the Pennine Way and I had our midlife crisis together yes, that I that I went the whole distance and boy I'm really pleased I did
1: yes. You get that wonderful feeling listening to you that it, it means such a lot, like it does mean to all those people who walk it uh, it, it transforms their lives and, and there's
2: something that goes ahead of the Pennine Way, it's partly because it was the first trail partly because it, it, it's achieved a, a reputation that goes beyond just the walking fraternity uh, and it, it's also the fact that people have cut their teeth there. People have measured themselves against the path. And, you know, growing up as a as an inquiring, um, maybe ambitious teenager, I scoured the bookshops for walking books. Uh, John Hillaby's Walking Through Britain, his end-to-end route of the, of the 60s, yeah. was just inspirational. But the first route guide that I bought was Tom Stevenson's HMSO guide to the Pennine Way. I'm going back to probably late 70s something like that black and white number with os maps in black and white with the route traced in red across it looking back now it's something out the stone age but uh, i still pick it up with a veneration because it it really sent my imagination going and i traced the route page after page thinking i'll do that one day when i'm ready for it but the one guidebook in particular, or the one book to the Pennine Way that probably most people will either have or be aware of, was Wainwright's guide.
1: Pennine Way Companion. A
2: Pennine Way Companion, which is his typical little hand-drawn, pocket-sized book. You'll be familiar with his Coast to Coast and obviously his slate District set. But his Pennine Way book also sold in, in large numbers. And yet, there's an enigma. He doesn't seem to like the Pennine Way. (laughs) By his own admission, he found it a bit of a slog at times, he got a bit wet, got a bit grumpy, which is probably nothing unusual for Wainwright, but um, if you read the book through, as I've done several times, it's, it's an odd one. It really is an odd one, because he writes about it from north to south, which is the opposite way most people walk about it. You have to read up and down the page to make sense of it sometimes. And it comes through on a number of occasions. He he found it hard work, and he didn't fall in love with the Pennine Way. And yet, people still got that on their shelves.
1: they have indeed. Now, I think we ought to move on a little bit further, because we don't want to spend too long in this wonderful spot. The light is shifting, uh, and in fact, the Galloway cattle have shifted a couple of hundred yards since we started. <laughs> we'll head towards them. Coming along beside the River Tees, and the landscape's so elevated and wide. Because there's no trees, and you've got this great river coming through here, and there's a farmstead just over to our right. There's something Hebridean about this, which is unique in England.
2: Mm, Absolutely. And the Pennine Way goes through several different phases from the Peak District Moors to the South Pennines, the Dales, but the North Pennines are different again and it's this overwhelming sense of space and openness uh, and the fact you're just a tiny little speck in this huge landscape. I find it irresistible, I really do. Quite. Now, uh, you're
1: reflecting about the whole process of the trail itself coming into
2: being. What was that process from Tom's ideas? So um, the 1949 Act set up the platform to create national trails. Pennine Way was designated as the very first in 1951, but it, then it wasn't officially opened till 1965. So 14 years elapsed from the time it was designated to when it was actually officially opened. But of course, already people were walking it. Mm-hmm. But there was no path, there were no signs, People were making it up as they went along. There were no maps, really. It was, it was incredible, and yet I've spoken to many people in quite advanced years who gaily walked along the whole of the route that they thought would be the route and had a fantastic time. Just knocked on a farmer's door to stay overnight. It was quite incredible. They were walking the prototype Pennine Way, but 1965, official opening at right. Mallon Moor. Tom Stevenson, government minister, big set up, marquees it made lots of headlines.
1: It's amazing the thought. It's a one-day event and I know Upper Airedale is a quite a, a confined road system and so forth, so how do they cope upon on Moor?
2: Well, going on the anecdotes of the head warden at the time, Wilf Proctor, and I interviewed his widow, the National Park Rangers from the Yorkshire Dales excelled themselves. They organized a one-way system around the lanes, <laughs> they they shuttled people in their Land Rovers, uh, it must have been quite a feat, and the photographs show these, these big marquees up near, near Malam Tarn, uh, and arranging a big, high-profile event for all these guests really was a logistical challenge. But if there's one group of people, other than the army that can rise to it, it are National Park Rangers.
1: So how many people do you think uh, came to that event?
2: Well, there were, there were 200 invited guests who sat down for tea in the marquees, but the photographs show hundreds more ordinary people, families turning up because this was big Big, high profile stuff. So so ramblers and families came out from all over the area, all in from Leeds and West Yorkshire to enjoy the event. Uh, And it must've been quite an occasion because catering for that many people was a challenge. For a while they couldn't find anyone prepared lay on 200 cream teas high up on the moors above Malham. Now you have it in your book about that little narrative. Well, the head ranger at the time, Wilf, wrote an account of the opening for the the volunteers newsletter in 2005 and and I quote in my book that they struggled to find any caterers but eventually the canteen manager for toothpaste firm Elida Gibbs, as in Gibbs SR, the famous toothpaste firm, they had an establishment in Leeds and they rose to the challenge. They organized chairs, tables, cutlery and crockery, cheerful Yorkshire waitresses, water for tea in milk churns from the nearby Tarn House, and all the food. 200 guests sat down to ham salad, cream cakes, and cups of tea ad infinitum. This this beats the WI, doesn't it, really? Oh, it does. (laughs) But to give you an idea of the resourcefulness of the Rangers and the the National Park team, apparently a lady fainted in the tent but instead of making a big scene, they very carefully dragged her out from underneath the covers on the side. <laughs> the trail when it first opened, but there was barely any way marking, but people were doing it in quite some considerable numbers. Well, that's right. So in 1965, the path was formally opened, but of course, apart from maybe in the national parks and the beginning and the end, you really had to find your own way. It's a, so- bit, like, it's a bit like freedom to roam, but it's- Oh it was, yeah, yeah. Very, very much so. However, fast forward 10 years, so like mid 70s, mid late 70s, suddenly this path was popular. People were walking it in their thousands. It's reckoned over 10, even 12,000 people a year were walking it full distance, setting off, and sometimes very ill prepared. And this route where there was no path, no signs, suddenly it was a small motorway of pedestrian yeah. traffic uh,
1: the whole outdoor culture was
2: focused in on one trail we can't imagine it today because there are so many trails and the thing to remember about this we were talking like mid late 70s although there were one or two other national trails or long distance paths as they were called emerging really no one knew about them apart from the hardened walkers it was the pennine way that was uh, if you like now finding a footing in popular culture popular mythology people who are not walkers were setting out on the route people just turning up with a pack and boots and maybe they bought the day before because they'd heard about the Pennine Way challenge to give you an idea you know John Noakes on go with Noakes walk yes. the Pennine Way that inspired a young generation suddenly everyone who was everyone had to walk the Pennine Way to earn their spurs and to show what what a man or a woman they were We're in a bit of a lonely
1: stretch here, but of course, uh, the Pennine Way, when it was established, didn't have the infrastructure of accommodation naturally, because there was no journey before, um, but youth hostelling was very strong.
2: The Youth Hostel Association grew up in that kind of 1930s era where the Ramblers, Cyclists Touring, and, and all the other outdoor clubs really came into their own. And the Pennine Way and the and the youth hostels, in particular, grew together so that there were deliberately youth hostels stationed at the end of every stage of the Pennine Way, and you could walk the entire Pennine Way using youth hostels. In fact, in the 70s and 80s, there was a set-up, I think the Pennine Way Bureau, it was eventually called, where you could book all the hostels in one go centrally before you set off. Uh, and if they were full, they found you somewhere nearby. So this was very much a route that was, was closely bound up with hosteling because that was the cheap, outdoor way of, in, of enjoying the hills uh, and it was something that really was incredibly popular in the in the 1970s. People also camped there were plenty of places people wild camped and officially camped and then there were the the b bs the guest houses and the farmhouses. and for 30 years almost the Pennine Way Association produced the uh, Pennine Way Accommodation Guide uh, a guy called John Needham edited it for, for over 25 years and it listed some fantastic establishments. Quirky, you might call some of them, but places that adored Pennine Way walkers. And likewise, they adored the places um, that were there for them at the end of the day. There are still a number on the route today, far fewer than before. But one in particular that stands out and is still there at the northern end of the route of Burness is, uh, is Forest View. Mm-hmm. Colin and Joyce run a fantastic uh, accommodation a guest house mm-hmm. B&B guest house it's the only one in a small village the only one you can stay at and they have been pampering their Pennine Way guests arriving footsore from south and north they understand what it is to walk long distance the yes. the physical fatigue the wet feet the aching shoulders but also the emotion as well and and I sat up late tonight when I wrote the book and talking to Colin beforehand who said I uh, you know I don't walk it myself but I understand how people come here with their hearts singing, but their feet aching.
1: So these people who are serving the walkers, they, did they build up a sort of a relationship with walkers?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, and there were, there were Pennine Way walkers who walked the trail and are still walking the trail many times over. And some of them get to know the accommodation providers and the caterers on first name terms. But I, I spoke to a number of landladies, of cafe owners who said they could identify a Pennine Way walker as he or she approached. In particular, the Penny Ghent Cafe at Horton in Ribblesdale, run by the same family, the Bayes family, for 50 years. So it it started, that cafe started when the Pennine Way was opened. Remarkable. And um, Melanie at the cafe said to me, you can spot Pennine Way walkers. There's a fresh airness about them. She called it fresh airness, which I love. And, And I understand that. There's a sense you come off after 10, 12, 15 miles on the open tops. And there's a look in your eye and there's a gait, and you're different to those other ramblers hopping around. You're walking the Pennine Way and you're a fresh air walker.
1: That fresh airness, I think that's gorgeous. Well, it's quite a tussle coming across the Clints there. The, what's falcon Clints? You see the crags, the dolerite crags above our heads. Fortunately, the sun's out, so we're um, able to clear our heads and watch where we're putting our feet, but the tees is right beside us. And across the valley, there's a great sweep of heather uh, and natural regrowth of trees there, um, scrub, you might say. This is what nature does, given a chance. Now, this is a special heritage landscape for natural history.
2: Uh, Most definitely, this area of Upper Teesdale is very, very important for its flowers in particular. Uh, and this Arctic Alpine environment hosts a number of flowers that you will find in very few other places uh, in England. In particular, the Teasdale Violet is a very rare flower you'll find around here. But what strikes me quite often is talking to botanists, the flowers are tiny, absolutely tiny. smaller than the size of your thumbnail. Pin, and, pinhead. and exactly, and you have to look very carefully, even on the side of the path, they'll be there from late spring, early summer. Uh, and it is a botanist delight.
1: Just down the valley, you can still see a farm that Winniebank which is whitewashed, which is rather characteristic of there.
2: It is, and it, it is unusual and unique to this location. You won't find it anywhere else in Teesdale because all the buildings around here are whitewashed, and there are there are several stories regarding its origin, but they centre on Lord Barnard of the Raby Estate, who uh, it is said uh, one day got lost uh, and it benighted. He sought refuge at a local uh, cottage. They put him up, they fed him, they looked after him, uh, and he thanked them and went on his way. He received a bill a few days later, which, uh, which he rather grudgingly paid, only to find out later that the cottage was actually one of his, and they were his tenants. And after that, he declared that all his properties, all his tenancy properties should be whitewashed so he could identify them in the future. Well, we just came round that corner Andrew. I was stumbling over boulders and things. Fulton
1: Clint seemed to dwindle on forever. And uh, we've come past quite a broad strath and we've come to the confluence of Maze Beck. And we're just round the corner. And hey presto, we've come upon this excited cauldron of water, which is Cauldron Snout. And we just had a burst of rain as well, which just makes all the scrambling up it all the more. Exciting and interesting, let's say. Uh, it's a wonderful moment on the River Tees, and above it, there's the, uh, quite the reverse, the concrete dam of Cow Green Reservoir, which is right out of place in this wonderful place of nature. Now, you've walked the Pennine Way, you've had high points. This will probably be one of them, but have you got any others that you can relate to?
2: Oh, there are so many high points, so many uh, landscape jaw-dropping moments on the Pennine Way. I think this section we're walking today from Teesdale across to Dufton has probably the pick of the bunch. High force waterfall, and we've now got Cordon Snout. We've got another huge surprise coming up in a minute as well. But elsewhere on the trail, I'd probably pick two or three other places. Uh, Starting in the Peak District, which is my home after all, that first uh, episode on Kinder Scout on top of the moorland uh, of the Peak District is sensational. I've always been head over hills with Malham Cove and that huge, rocky amphitheatre above the village. A dry Niagara. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but then if you want to contrast to the natural, the man-made Hadrian's Wall, especially that uh, undulating middle section uh, towards Housesteads, which the Pennine Way follows, is taxing, but it's sensational. And so there's one thrill after the other, but um, As always, your experience is dominated by what the weather's doing, how you're feeling. Sometimes people's highs are not necessarily the other people's highs. Personally for me, one of the lower points was the the conifer plantations in Northumberland, where um, I sank up to my knees in a bog and spent the morning staring at uh, spruces. Um, However, that finale across the Cheviots, which was Tom Stevenson's favorite section after all, is really the, 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 the icing on the cake. So it's a, it's a roller coaster of landscape highlights from beginning to end.
1: Many people I understand tend to think of it just as a boring moorland walk. What's your take on that reaction? Well, I
2: think in, in any long distance walk, especially a walk of 268 miles along the tops of England, there are probably good bits, and not quite so good bits, And there will be bits in between that don't appeal for one reason or another. And there are long Moorland sections, but I'm with Tom Stevenson on this. He said that Moorland has its own charm, those retreating skylines, the long wide horizons. You can switch off walking and immerse yourself in the landscape. Uh, And the sense of distance is really quite profound. The fact that your, your eye and your mind can travel for long, long distances ahead and behind You don't get that in the middle of pointy mountains. For him, Moorland had his own special charm, but all the way along it's interspersed by these uh, fantastic landscape highlights, like the cove, like the waterfalls here that just jump out and bring it all together.
1: That was a lovely little scramble. Weird coming out of a road momentarily over the, Footbridges before the dam and then we're onto a rough track and ha, the rain's come back. So you did mention earlier about more middle-aged people are adopting walking the route.
2: Yes the age profile of, of people uh, completing the route or walking on the Pennine Way because a lot of people are doing shorter walks has shifted from younger age group to the middle age and early retirees. There's a definite uh, change there but for me walking the route when both the trail and I were 50, it was a it was a midlife adventure. And I was drawn to the, the words of the author, Mark Wallington, who gave a short talk about the Pennine Way I attended and gave a wonderful little anecdote, which I, I repeat here. He drew people's attention to the fact that Uh, young men they have all these ambitions in life they have a bucket list of things that they're going to set out and do everything from scoring the goal in an FA cup final to marrying a supermodel to um to to being successful in business to walking the pennine way Uh, and as they get older all the things start falling off the list that are either unobtainable or unrealistic until all that's left is possibly the Pennine Way. <laughs> uh, and it's, it, it resonated with me at the age of 50. Yeah, the ultimate
1: seductress. Well, we come off that track and we're in an amazing landscape, a great bowl in the hills. It seems even vaster than we were before, but over to our south, you can see Fell, And Mickle, of course, just means the big hill uh to our north we're looking towards melden hill and ahead of us i can see narrowgate beacon uh, above high cup uh, and rundale tarn is hidden on the moor beyond that which leads eventually up to crossfell but that's out of sight but we've just passed some flags and the interesting thing about flags these stone flags that were put down when, when were they put down andrew do you feel when do they start doing that process?
2: Well, these, these flagstones, uh, possibly these are fairly recent, but the, the Pennine Way, from quite early days, uh, because the fragile moorland habitat cut up quite easily, began to, to suffer from overuse. But it wasn't just walkers boots, in, especially in the Peak District. It's, it was uh, the legacy of up to two centuries industrial atmospheric pollution, as well as overgrazing by sheep and wildfires. And very quickly, with all those hundreds, thousands of pairs of boots, the peat became eroded. And Black Hill, Bleaklow, even as, uh, up the other end in the Cheviots, there was serious erosion of the path.
1: I remember there was some mention where they cleared Kindred Scout of sheep. They got how many thousand off?
2: Uh, absolutely, yes. Thousands! I mean, Tom Stevenson famously described them as woolly locusts because mm. nothing could grow because they just nipped the green shoots. Yes. Um, so the, the National Park uh, and the Countryside Commission had a huge task to try and repair the damage. Latterly, there's been a, a, a massive landscape scale, uh, more of the future program, mm-hmm. to, to address this by reseeding, but most directly the Pennine Way uh, issue was solved by putting down flagstones. Now these stone flagstones, they came from uh, disused mills, on the, mainly on the West Pennine side, the old cotton mills. Mm-hmm. And if you look very carefully at these flagstones, you'll see indentations, scratches, marks, which were the footings of the looms and the weaving machines. Right. It's, uh, and there's a really uncanny full circle going on here, which I point out in the book. This stone was quarried from the Pennines to build the factories. The factory workers Desperate on Sundays to escape uh, to be free men on the Sunday came up onto the hills over time The Pennai Way and other paths eroded and the problem was solved by putting down the stone flags from the mills that are closed down Uh, It it just went all full circle. It's sort of 200 years of history Mm. at a glance and uh, and the flagstones They had their detractors. There were plenty of people that said you should not be putting down a paved path in the middle of this open wilderness but as we see on black hill which is turned green as we've seen in the Cheviots as well it doesn't take long for the vegetation to grow back around if the sheep are kept out and very soon these flags look like an old causey path yes. going back to Packhorse days mm, and and they are solving the problem. Yes. The Pennine Way is a much, much drier easier path to walk now. I've been staggered by my
1: earlier memories. I did a book for Cicero eons ago <laughs> high peak walks and I wandered over Black Hill, bleak so on and they were just morass of Black The, the
2: scale of the problem Ooh. had to be seen to be believed and the photographs, I've got a few in the book, show the Pennine Way path 50, 60, 75 feet wide in places as people tried to to get around the eroded uh, bog and on famously on Black Hill on the north of the Peak District uh, Alfred Wainwright had to be literally pulled out sucked out of the bog because he had got stuck on the eroded summit of Black Hill Very you hard. go over now on the flagstones it, as I say it's a green hill it's yeah. a beautiful hill to walk
1: it's, it's a long green trail now it is Well, here we've arrived on the wooden footbridge over Maze Beck. Interesting name, Maze. It's from the Viking Mazan, titmouse. So the little bird will have flitted through this landscape. Um, there used to be a issue about crossing Maze Beck. Andrew, can you tell me a little bit about this bridge and the significance of the spot?
2: Well, Maze Beck uh, seems reasonably innocuous to us. It's not. That wide and it looks fairly shallow but when the weather is against you uh, and the river and and it is almost a river here is in spate with a heavy pack tired halfway through or towards the end of the day this could be a serious and problematic crossing for Pennine Way walkers a lot of walkers tried to get across to the southern bank which before the bridge necessitated wading or hopping across the rocks Uh, and the route on the southern bank was known as the flood route because further up the beck, when uh, there'd been a lot of rain, the route on the northern side was sometimes uh, unwalkable. However, in the late 60s, in particularly bad conditions, there was a walking group up here. The weather was horrendous, The, the visibility was next to zero, and a walking group struggled across the river. In doing so, the party got separated and uh, unfortunately the upshot was one man was found drowned in the river and another was lost. There was a huge surge operation and unfortunately they recovered a second body much later. Out of this tragedy though, there was at least a, a bright spark. The Teesdale and Weardale mountain rescue team was formed as a result because we may not be in the middle of the Lake District or on a treacherous piece of seacoast, but this is a challenging environment and it's easy to be caught out by the elements. So Pennine Way can be a serious prospect for the unwary.
1: But that proved a catalyst for some positive outcome. Anyway, our next plan, we're moving on to the south bank and we're heading across the plain, as it's called, towards the magic of High Cup. The wind is blowing here, Andrew, we're coming close to what is, and I can see it in front of me now, Narragate Beacon and the rim of Dollarite that form the edge of High Cup Gill. And beyond, I can see across the Eden Valley, in the rather misty distance, the High Street Range, the easternmost fells of the Lake District. Not so clearly seen today, but on a a perfect day, you would just think, wow, wow, wow. Well, certainly, the light is dancing off the rocks now, and playing into the nick, uh, of Hike Up Nick. People always refer to it as Hike Up Nick, but actually, strictly, it's just a physical one element of a, a long uh, escarpment that rims this great U shaped valley. What do you think Pennine Way walkers, feel when they come here?
2: Well, you've walked across from Teesdale on a relatively level route, uh, and you're going across fairly flat moorland, and nothing quite prepares you heading west to to Dufton for what's at your feet. It's suddenly revealed, and it's one of those Pennine Way impact moments, when you stand, say, at the top of Malam Tan, or you get to the summit of Cross Fell, Here in High Cup, the land falls away below you, and it's a jaw dropper. And I've stood here several times watching walkers come up, Pennine Way walkers come up, who just stand open mouthed at the view, and this is a Pennine Way moment.
1: Suddenly you realise you're in mountains, not just moorland and uh, anybody's into landforms, geomorphology, glaciation, uh, they will be so excited here. Even the sheep are excited. Look at them running past us. (laughs) Because the wind comes here, the prevailing wind. Uh, Here we are in September and uh, it's a warmish breeze, give it its due, (laughs) but it's still a fierce breeze. I don't know how that microphone's coping. We'll, um, We'll go a little bit further and see if we can find the nick itself. Well, Andrew, we've just come to what's known as the Nick and we're looking straight down the great U-shaped glaciated valley. Imagine the great body of ice that once sat in there. It's enormous. It's because of the dollarite, the wind sill that you'll encounter uh, on Hadrian's Wall, that's exactly what you see here. There's great swathes of stone scree, great curtains run down that valley. See the silvery water half a mile away suddenly appearing. What
2: I, what I really, really like about this is that you have to walk to get here. You can't drive to a car park and just look from your car. This is a, a natural beauty that you have to use your two feet. If High Cup was anywhere else, uh, say in the Lake District and more accessible, it would be one of the top five beauty spots mm-hmm. because it, it is such an amazing natural phenomenon.
1: It's just a mesmerizing moment that you almost don't want to leave. But as Andrew said, this is a place for walkers. And I recommend listeners, you must come here at least once in your life. Best of all, if you're on the Pennine Way. Anyway, we'll now follow the northernmost rim uh, round underneath Narrow Gate Beacon. And the sun's shining now. It's absolutely beautiful. Well, we're in the green of Doveton. What an enchanting village. Uh, it gets a lot of visitors. Uh, there's a Post Box Pantry uh, and the Stag Inn Over the Way, which is a very popular evening institution for Pennine Way walkers. They get here after a very long day. (laughs) But this isn't the end. There's probably at least, I would say, seven more big days to come. One very big one directly after this Olston. But getting to the Border Inn, is it the Border Hotel in Kirkieto? That is the real moment. what sort of sensations have you found, Andrew, from people?
2: Well, I spoke to a number of people who walked the Pennine Way before I did. So I was very interested to see if my my sensations, my emotions measured up to them. And by and large they did. There was a, a sense of elation at finishing, uh, a sense of physical um, contentment. Mm. But there was that strange anticlimax, as if, it's finished now. What do I do? Yes, uh, and 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 what next?
1: What next? Uh, you, you almost longed to be going to John O'Groats.
2: Uh, and uh, I tell you what, one of the the oddest sensations I think I had was sitting in the border hotel with my certificate, my free half pint. Oh yes. Um, and and feeling good for myself, but no one was interested in me. The, oh. the pub was packed, and I felt like saying, "I've just walked 268 miles to get to your pub. You should at least say well done." Where the where's the bunting? But of where's coo- the fireworks? But of course, it was full of happy local people going about their business. The bar staff was lo- were lovely to me, but of course they they see my type every day coming in, and they have done on and off for the the last you know fifty fifty odd, 50 years. odd years. So, um, so it so brought it home to me. It's a very personal it's satisfaction. Deeply inside you, it really is. And I think in the in the days and certainly in the weeks that followed, I really uh, um, dwelt more on the the achievement and the, just the personal satisfaction of having done the Pennine Way. Yeah. What I've really came away with was that I've joined the Pennine Way Club. Yeah, I can look back for the rest of my days and say, I've done that. I suppose I've challenged myself quietly, internally, and i I'd just stepped up a ladder in my life and done that. I don't need to look behind me at the Pennine Way anymore. Well, it got to that point, Andrew, Well, I really ought to think about signing off.
1: Thank you enormously for coming all the way up from Yogreb. Just for the day, uh, we've got to get you round and back to Langdon Beck before you can drive home. It's a big night for you to drive, but it's been a tremendous honour. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Mark. Journey's end in lovely Dufton. I'm sure you can hear the crows behind me. And there's the wood smoke rising from the stag in there. Obviously a great night to sit and have a pint in there. I think there is an autumnal feel now, isn't there, Mark? Oh, but it is
1: that, yes.
0: Well, what a great day. Now, you haven't done that exact walk. What did you make of it?
1: Well, um, I had been forewarned how amazing it would be, and it lived up to it. It felt longer than I was expecting.
0: Mm, It's a fair trek, isn't it? It's a fair trek. It's a long, lonely upland crossing, but Mm. full of interest and that moment when you first see High Cup there. Yeah, even Wainwright
1: must have said, this is special. But it's interesting, during the course of the uh, conversation with Andrew, we mulled over what Wainwright would have thought about the route and how disappointing it was and he thought well I'll create my own route I rather fancy it was the fact that he felt he could make a prettier route he was an artist after all and the romance of another journey that properly reflected his vision of what the north of England was that he nurtured in the Lake District and the best of the Yorkshire Dales that was probably his driving force and then he came up with this wonderful simple idea going straight across coast to coast so it sounded really good although actually I think the Pennine Way serves a much more enduring purpose. People come to it for different emotional reasons.
0: You think almost that Wainwright felt that he just couldn't draw anything very interesting.
1: (laughs) No, even though he worked in black and white, the bogs looked blacker than black.
0: Yeah, uh, it's... And the gridstone and everything.
1: So he didn't really, he didn't warm to it. There Um, you go.
0: My personal view on this, because it is fascinating to wonder why he hated it quite so vehemently, given that we know he loved the Pennines, right? Ooh, I mean, very much. He's a Pennine already, lad. Well, he's a Pennine lad who'd already written his Pennine journey, for goodness sake, yes. many, many years earlier, where he loved it. Mm. He loved his Pennine journey. He loves the Pennines. He loves the Coast Coast, but he hates the Pennine. It doesn't make much sense. The two suggestions for it that I think have some credence are the fact that he was going through a very tough time personally with the breakdown of his first marriage, Uh, And secondly, uh, and I I think this is an interesting one, this is my personal hypothesis, is that it's actually surprisingly sociable as a walking trail. Mm. But I think it's fair to say that wouldn't have appealed massively to uh, the great man. No, he wouldn't have been constantly looking up for
1: fellow walkers and sharing a moment's chat or catching up with them or waiting for them to come in and to the hostel because he wouldn't have been in the hostel anyway. <laughs> so no, that's exactly. Right. You'd have been running
0: away. No, uh, which, re-
1: which means I, I just quickly flicked to talking of hostels. Mm. Uh, I contacted Linda at the Alston hostel, which, is when you've got to here, the next epic <laughs> is to tra- traverse uh, Cross Fell, which is one mighty mountain day, and uh, it's a, it's the kind of place when you get to Alston that you think, oh crikey, me, let's give me a break. And a lot of walkers actually have a, a rest day. And Linda was saying that she gets very philosophical with the walkers. Uh, they, they're undertaking something that is self-affirming, but they get there. And she has opportunities to speak to uh, walkers, not just the one-nighters. You get two-nighters there, uh, and they, they share all their reasons for walking it. And the overwhelming essence of walking the Penang Way, they think, is a personal feeling. Uh, and everyone uh, experiences it differently. Uh, but some love it, some hate it. And some wait, can't wait to finish, but they plod on stoically.
0: Mm. So, yeah. It's, uh, so She's it's, almost a kind of offer, offering therapy to yes. these uh, Pennine yeah. Wayers.
1: Yes, yeah, if she wasn't committed to running the hostel, she'd be out walking every day. And that's lovely to know you're going to somewhere where you've got a fellow wanderer to, to guide you.
0: That's lovely, yes. We have collected these few anecdotes, haven't we, just to end the uh, Pennine Way podcast. I've got one here, uh, Mark, and this is a personal one. I was staying at the Teesdale Hotel mm-hmm. uh, down in Middleton in Teesdale earlier this year, and my waitress that morning introduced herself as Mrs. Jackie Meeson. Now, Jackie Meeson is is interesting. She's the daughter of Mary and Brian Bainbridge, who farm at Birkdale Farm.
1: Oh, above the dam, we pass it. Last, yes, absolutely. The last domestic dwelling coming west.
0: Yep, middle of nowhere, uh, and it's often said to be the most remote farm in England, and she had three lovely stories. One of them was that one winter it snowed on, I think it was Christmas Eve, and it didn't fall until Easter. <gasps> she was snowed in for five months. That is a long winter. It's a long winter, and apparently the post lady still came up, did her rounds, but they couldn't really get out. They lived on their provisions, and they dug through the snow to get to the water of the beck there. And she had two other nice little tales. Uh, Firstly, when they were building the dam at that time, they would stop blasting away at the rock at 3.15 every day to let school-age Jackie uh, walk past on her way home from school. (laughs) Uh, and then the final thing was her mum managed to get a job raising the MOD red flag each day. Yes, but I we, saw one there today. Yeah, it was it was raised today, wasn't it? But she was paid handsomely and uh, still receives her MOD pension. That's very encouraging. I noticed on Facebook
1: over the weekend, Sharon Liedel, she mentioned about walking the Pennine Way with her family. And she said she did it uh, in 1978, that's 41 years ago, with mm. her parents and sister, and she was six
0: years old. So this is a family who walked the Pennine Way uh, during the golden era, and she was six. Unbelievable. Fantastic.
1: Well, she said they trained for months beforehand. Believe it or not, mum and dad had rucksacks of steel frames and waterproofs were mm. made out of thick material that rustled gladly like plastic bags. They never leaked and were very windproof. And so on, she's mentioned, and the campsites, uh, mostly no toilets or showers, and one had to boil water in a pan to wash and dash behind the wall for the toilet trips, hoping not to get nettled. My job was to carry my toy sheep, uh, my journal, and at six to write a journal or something, wouldn't it? Uh, And everybody's sandwiches. Uh, well, I mean, she, that sounds a bit tough.
0: It does not bit. Giving it? their six-year-old all the, all the food to yeah. take for the day. Amazing. And she got
1: lots of little anecdotes that she Like Black Hill was very boggy and there was no path. And no. my favourite memory was when we camped uh, near Wuthering Heights on day four. We camped in the field with one bull, two goats, some sheep, some chickens and a donkey. We were chased by three geese there. Anyway, Lovely. she does say, I think it's great that more people appreciate the outdoors... But I do urge people to be properly prepared with the map reading skills and proper clothing before they set out. I'd like to say, don't treat the outdoors as a competition. The fells and the moors are there uh, much more than that.
0: I think we would agree with... uh, This is Sharon Liedel. Yep. We would agree with her assessment there. Congratulations, Sharon, six years old. That is uh, an incredible achievement, isn't it?
1: And uh, she was reported back to me. Uh, She still loves walking... For all that must have been a challenge to her, she loves it to bits.
0: Great. Okay. Well, my, I, I've also had a fab day. I think it's fair to say uh, Andrew was a fantastic guest. And I think both you and I recommended book fully, don't we? You love it. Yeah, I, I, I think I, it's a, it's a bedside
1: book. read. There's so little anecdotes that resonate with walking generally in there.
0: There are. So the, the book's called The Pennine Way, The Path, The People, The Journey. That's Andrew McCloy and it's a Cicerone title. Well worth a read, particularly if you if you know and love the Pennine Way. Uh, from us here today, we're going to sign off. We'll be back for a, a special edition next time, Mark. We shouldn't say too much more, but we'll no. we'll be back in the Central Lakes. Back in the Central Lakes.
1: That? Back in the Central uh, Mystery Location, and it'll be just you and me.
0: It will be just the two of us, as they say. And I've issued you a challenge. I said, pick a favourite walk. So there we go I don't know if there's any clues in there
1: yeah quick fire question that was
0: (laughs) yeah that's right okay well thanks for joining us on the Pennine Way hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have
1: thank you